0: Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg, and welcome to Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast. Tonight, are you ready for a radical lifestyle shift? This in the wake of the new report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This is the third and final report. The previous two set out the scale of the problem and the consequences for ignoring it. This one is all about mitigation. What can we do to stop the planet heating to a point where it becomes uninhabitable for millions and maybe billions? of people. We've got some really well-informed people lined up to take part but we'd also like to hear from you if you're listening live on Byline Radio on your phone in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen will be a microphone icon. Just tap on that to request access. Before we go any further, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast where you may be listening on catch-up are supported by the Byline Times, a fabulous monthly newspaper. Yes, a good old fashioned paper that reports with fear or favor and which owes no obligations to any proprietor or corporate interest. Why not? Well, because it's funded by people like you. So please, if you can, take out a subscription or a membership. You'll find details on our news breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Right then, the headlines from the latest IPCC report on climate change. Scientists say global emissions need to peak within three years to stave off the worst impacts. And even then, even then, progress will be reliant on, as yet unproven, carbon capture technology. Even if all current government pledges are met, around the world, the planet is on course to warm by more than three degrees this century, which is simply not good enough, according to the scientific evidence. In the words of the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres, we will see unprecedented heat waves, terrifying storms, and widespread water shortages. So what can governments do? what can we do well let's welcome Acid raymond into the conversation Acid is the director of war on want hello Acid. welcome Ased. hi lovely to speak to you uh Ased. so um what do you make of uh, this report even though it was much delayed it doesn't pull too many punches
1: no it doesn't and actually the uh, just so your listeners understand what happens is that there are there is a, there's been these three Substantive reports and they run to the thousands of pages, and then, and that's written by climate scientists, thousands and thousands of submissions, takes years to pull it all together. And then we have what is called a policy, a summary for policymakers, which is negotiated line by line by governments. So, what you're seeing in the summary for policymakers is what basically all governments are agreeing can be said. So take that with a pinch of salt because what it means is this is the weakest language right that's usually agreed so this is not the most strongest re- reality of the climate crisis this is what uh, there's been consensus being able to say but still it's absolutely not only terrifying um because of course the climate crisis is not simply an environmental crisis in terms of extreme weather it's it's the ecosystems which humanity relies on for everything from fresh water to our food production to basically uh, humanity's you know uh, future existence and we are uh, in a critical moment we can see that all around us the scientists warned us in the first report that these impacts are more severe they're more extreme and they're happening faster than were previously predicted said the 1.5 degree guardrail is critical otherwise we get into tipping points which basically means no matter what we do we'll start to increase temperatures uh, anyway Um, the second report said can we adapt to these changes and it said we're at the limit of our adaptability um, that many of our ecosystems are at the point of collapse now and that once we go up one point past 1.5 there will be a lot of irreversible, irreversible sort of consequences of that, and it said also that 3.6 billion people, these—that's half the world's population—already face high or highly vulnerable to the climate crisis, and of course the crisis compounds all the other existing inequalities and injustices. And this third report was meant to be about, and is about. Can we? What can we do about it? What are the pathways through it? And you know, I suppose the the, the first uh, important uh, 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 statement is you can't carry on expanding fossil fuels. And of course, in a week where our own government. Uh, along with some of the other richest countries in the world from the United States Canada, Norway Australia are all ex- planning massive expansions of oil and gas it just flies in the in the face of both the science of humanity etc but underneath the report is actually what's much more interesting I find because it spells out that what you need is both a systemic transformation of all parts of our economy but that can be done because uh, it's full of hope that solving this climate crisis and solving poverty and inequality go hand in hand, that many of the solutions that are there are already viable. They just need political will and they need the finance to make them happen. And interestingly in both of these reports, and what the UN Secretary General talked about, even in his introduction today, was the importance of people. That it's only people and people power and building movements which is going to shift the dial. That basically governments and corporations are simply twiddling their thumbs, lying to us that they're acting, and they're taking us to the edge of catastrophe.
0: Yeah, and you say this report is the, the weakest that it could be, given that there has to be this government consensus across the world. But the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, certainly laying it on the line, isn't he? Saying that there are governments and businesses who claim that we're on track for 1.5 degree Celsius maximum, which is the most that we can accept before there is potentially significant change to our world. And he said, some government and business leaders are saying one thing but doing another. Simply put, they are lying and the results will be catastrophic. That's not a member of Extinction Rebellion saying that. That's the UN Secretary General.
1: Uh, absolutely. And he said, you know, often climate activists are labelled dangerous radicals. The real dangerous radicals are our political leaders and corporations. So, you know, and he's. And it's not the first time. I mean, he's consistently said that the only hope of the, for the world for the, to change this and, and solve this crisis relies with people. Our political leadership leaders are failing us, and clearly they are failing us because, despite all of the evidence and the stark evidence, and scientists saying again and again and again, and this is of course not new. We've we've had this is the sixth. Kind uh, IPCC reports, so they happen every five years. This is the sixth time we've seen this report. We've had 27 uh, climate conferences, and still we're heading towards, you said, a warming of a planet of three degrees, which will basically mean much of the world is uninhabitable for human civilization. What do you make of the carbon capture
0: technology, which we're told will be necessary to uh, keep emissions down to a a level at which the planet will remain habitable? I was chatting earlier on a, a kind of preview podcast for Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast. And the evidence there was that although some of this carbon capture is theoretically possible or it's possible in a laboratory, the kind of scale of carbon capture we're going to need simply has not been proven to work on the scale at which we need it to work.
1: Absolutely. It's a—it's actually a very, very dangerous distraction. This whole argument about net zero and net zero 2050 is this idea that you can continue to pump out carbon, pollute the atmosphere, and then somehow, in some magical moment, we'll find technology to suck the carbon back out of the atmosphere. First of all, it relies on overshoot the idea that you can go you can dial up the world's temperature and then try and dial it back down even though the science tells you once you dial it up the impacts are there you can't dial it back down the second thing that they're relying on of course is that these technologies can work to scale despite all of their investments there has been no technology that works to scale so can you imagine what they're gambling with they're gambling with the planet's future humanity's future on technology which is non-existent and we have to ask ourselves why Because there are a lot of very powerful vested interests, particularly the fossil fuel industry, who are saying, carry on, we can carry on polluting because don't worry, we'll find a way to somehow uh, suck this carbon out of the atmosphere. Now, none of us. None of us would accept that being public policy, for example, if we were getting on a train saying, Yeah, you know what, there's a, a, a chance that this train might crash at the end. Uh, you'd be saying, Hold on a minute, that's not a way to have any effective public policy. But it's incredible. But that's what we're doing on, 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 with regards to, to the climate crisis. And just one final comment in terms of all of these modelling that the, that the is, that APCC uses, you know, all has inbuilt within it this assumption that we will be able to have negative emissions technologies that these carbon capture and storage systems will be able to come on and i just found that frankly shocking right because of course it's not just gambling with all of our futures overwhelmingly we're gambling and we are we're saying that the people in particularly in the global south who have this high vulnerability already being impacted are the ones who are going to face the harshest and the deepest consequences again this ipcc report shows that it's the richest 10% of the world's population which is overwhelmingly all of us as citizens in the global north who are responsible for majority of emissions for all the consuming for living lifestyles uh, aided by our uh, by, an e- by our economic model which has taken us to this to this point and that for many people they don't even have the basics to be able to live a, you know, a basic dignified life like health, education, enough energy, enough food, etc. So really what this report basically says is you need a radical transformation. Uh, I work around the idea of a global Green New Deal. We basically need something on that scale, you know, that fixes our food system, our energy system, that really addresses our global economic system from tax trade to the power of corporations that makes food and energy, something that's equitably shared that recognizes living wages and universal public services are really critical, both to dealing with poverty and inequality, but actually also really critical in terms of providing communities with the resilience to deal with many of these impacts that we're going to, we're already seeing, but are going to worsen in the coming years. I was struck, I was going to just, I'll just finish, I was struck by one of the IPCC scientists who said, you know, change. It's coming There's and that's inevitable the only question now is what kind of change and who will pay the price of it will it be the poorest people who pay the price of it and I think that's a really uh, important thing for us to recognize it's not a question now of will there be change it's a question of what kind of change either it's going to be a very dystopian climate apartheid the rich might be able to use wealth to seek some safety and leave the poor to burn or we're going to have Turn and, and, and and turn the dial and actually create a much fairer more equitable and more just world
0: yeah a little early on and i would recommend listeners seek out the preview podcast i did with uh, Chatanya kumar who's head of environment and green transition at the new economics foundation he was making the point that one of the reasons why governments were finding it difficult to agree on a form of words for the final release of the publication was that you've got countries in the global south like india who are seeking to develop seeking to grow their economies pointing to us in the global north and accusing us of hypocrisy, saying, well, you want us to scale back our industry now, whilst you, in the global north, simply are sitting on the riches that have been generated from decades of emissions going back to the Industrial Revolution.
1: Absolutely, And, and it's not simply just about the fact that the rich countries are overwhelmingly still responsible for over half of all global emissions despite them only having you know about 18% of all the world's population it's also that they are blocking the finance and the technology that would allow developing countries to be able to leapfrog um, dirty development and find other pathways so what they're basically saying to, to the developing country is, do as I say, not as I do, right? So they're pointing the finger at India, and they're pointing the finger and saying, you should not be using coal, even whilst the UK is expanding oil and gas. They're saying to developing countries, you know, you should be uh, moving towards low carbon. And developing countries quite rightly are saying, hold on a minute, we're trapped in poverty. We've got half the world living on less than $5.50 a day. We're trapped in a debt crisis. You've left us to a COVID pandemic, which has destroyed our economies, whilst well you've used your wealth to protect your economies. And we face climate impacts, which are ripping through our economies. And you're saying you're by yourself. And the only offer on the table is to t- take out more debt creating loans. You created this problem. You need to help us. Now, we know the resources are there, we know the technology's there, we know the money's there. It just needs to be moved and it needs to be shared. And unfortunately, the what the, the climate crisis is a classic. It's the story of the failure of the free market because it's clearly not being able to. Relying on, you know, trickle-down, relying on corporations to solve this crisis doesn't work. We need government intervention and it needs to be coordinated and it needs to be on a global scale. That's the only hope that we've got in terms of turning, you know, uh, I, 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 having some... Hope for the for
0: the future. As I said I'm going to go to some of our callers in just a moment. Oh, it would be great if you could stay with us for a little of while as well, because you're extremely well informed on this, and I'm delighted to have you with us. But uh, just intrigued to know how, notwithstanding the wealth of the global north and how generations of people in the UK and the United States have benefited from industrialization and so on, which has pumped many of these, uh, much of this CO2 into the atmosphere. Here we are in the UK at a moment of a cost of living crisis, many people concerned about how they're going to heat their homes and so on, and they've been fed a narrative over many years that alternative forms of energy supply wind solar and so on are unreliable that they're too expensive and all that and we know that there are lobbies and agendas behind much of that messaging but the truth is that if we are going to address climate change here in the UK and and in the United States as well we are going to have to change our lifestyles quite radically aren't we so how can we what will that change look like and and how can we present it to a people in a way that doesn't feel scary that doesn't feel frightening for them
1: uh, well and i think that's uh, and it's an important message both in the climate reports and of course from climate justice organizations for a very very long time that one of the problems of why the climate narrative, as all has been really problematic, is it's tried to divorce climate from issues of social and economic justice. But when you look combine them, actually you can find ways in which... C- it, you you talk about people better lives right so we all know we're in a cost of living crisis we've got 14 million people in this country living in poverty we've got two and a half million people using food banks and of course many people now worrying about whether they're going to be freezing or heating their homes now the solution to that you know as we all know is you would cushion those energy price increases by windfall taxes on the energy companies. They call the fossil fuel industry a catch machine. That's how they label it. Instead, we're handing billions in subsidies to those fossil fuel industries. We should be actually putting energy caps, price caps. We've seen that in France, their energy prices are only going up by 4% because the government has intervened. But more importantly, what we should be doing is thinking about the future and saying actually we need to invest in renewable energy the fossil fuel industry will never move what you need to do is actually bring all energy into public ownership transition it fairly and equitably make sure that the workers are just transition and you build renewable energy and alongside it you need to reduce energy and the best way to do that energy efficiency is retrofit people's homes, warm homes, creates good jobs, creates lower people's bills, and it cuts our carbon. But all of the solutions to the climate crisis, there are incredible benefits. So we should be talking less. I think about, you know, the answer to the to the fuel crisis isn't well world. Let's take off a, a bit more on on surcharge on, on on people's petrol. You know what we should be talking about is how can we invest in free public transport, renewable energy transport. How do we make transport accessible? How do we redesign our cities so that they're healthier, cleaner, and we can walk and cycle more? This is all about creating a vision of the world and a vision of our communities, which is healthier and better. So I you I prefer not saying. It's less. I always think we, what we're proposing is a better world and a better community and a better society because clearly society as it is now isn't working for many people. And the reason for that, as we know, is because it's rigged in a particular way. Now, changing that actually unlocks all this huge potential. Um, and, you know, it will, we'll all leave healthier and happier lives.
0: Asad, do stay with us. It's uh, great to hear from you. Asad Raymond, who is the uh, director of War on One, which challenges global poverty. And of course, it's many people in the global south who would be in the immediate term anyway, be most likely to be impacted by climate change, though nobody in the world will be immune from its consequences. Not one of us, no matter how rich or how poor we are. Uh, let's speak to uh, this ain't rock and roll. Who's uh, asked to join the conversation? Hello, this ain't rock and roll. Welcome. Just click on your microphone. And you sh- hello there. You're right.
2: Hello. Um, it's actually Ocean Rebellion.
0: It's quiet. Oh, hello. You're a little bit quiet there. This ain't rock oh, and roll. Go on.
1: Hi, it's uh, Clive from ocean
0: rebellion uh clive from extinction rebellion clive you, you're ocean just way rebellion. too quiet clive you're way too quiet i'm afraid
1: okay my, it might be a problem with my phone i'll duck out
0: see see okay. if you can get another phone clive and come and join us i, I did mention extinction rebellion uh, and uh, clive is from extinction rebellion uh claudia <laughs> Hello, Claudia. Welcome.
3: Hi, thank you.
0: And you spoke the last time we discussed um, climate change on Byline Radio. What what do you make of the IPCC report? Welcome along again.
3: Thanks. Um, God, it's just it's exactly what you expect at this point, isn't it? If not worse. um, and, And again, it's just absolutely horrifying. And like we've said, it's it's the watered down version, right? and 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 that's insane because it's clearly just outlying it's it's saying we are on a fast track to climate disaster, you know, it's underlying everything that's going to happen, you know, major cities underwater. Um, you know, heat waves, um, you know, water scarcity to a level that we cannot imagine. And we have Antonio Guerrero going out his way saying, you know, this is not fiction. This is not an exaggeration. This is the exact path that we're going down if we don't change our current energy policy. Um, and I think for me, just the horrifying thing is that, you know, we've been here before and like we touched on COP, where you know we went, and again, it's all these broken promises after broken promises, and it's just, the reality is the government just does not care, okay? They have known about this for decades, and they are completely failing to act. You know, with the, with the promises that we have now, which we're not even meeting, we're going to have a 14% rise in emissions. That is a complete death sentence for people in the global south. That is a death sentence for young people. And like we've touched on again like the change is just not going to come from the government it is not going to come from our so-called leaders who have time and time again failed us the change which needs to happen which needs to happen urgently has to come from people. We have to come together and we have to create movements that cannot be ignored. We have to say enough is enough. And this kind of change is not going to come from petitions. It's not going to come, you know, from writing to our MPs as much as we wish it will. It has to come from civil resistance. It has to come from direct action. And that's where groups like Just Stop Oil come in, who, you know, are are using more radical tactics because we are in an extreme situation and if we want any hope if we want hope for our children if we want hope for people in the global south my family they're all from latin america and every day i wake up and i am terrified for them and if we want to create this amazing beautiful world that we know is possible then we have to take action and we have to take action now so please if you are interested if you want a future if you want to create this just world then please look at the campaign Just Up Oil. You can go on our website, social media, and let's come together and let's do something about this because we are powerful when we come together, but we cannot rely on a government that frankly does not care, that is more interested in lining their own pockets and is in bed with the oil industry to sort this situation out. Hello. Hello.
1: We can hear you, Claudia. I think it might be uh, uh, somebody the calls.
0: Sorry, I think I've uh, I've uh, switched on my microphone. <laughs> that was the uh, the error. I always joke that happens at least once an episode where I forget to switch on my microphone. I'm back now. Thank you. Uh, I said, Claudia, the right wing media will demonize people like you who believe in direct action. Anybody who chains themselves to an oil facility, anybody who glues themselves to an oil refinery will be portrayed as some kind of wrecker, as some kind of disruptor. I suspect that won't stop people like you from wanting to do it. How do we get over that media messaging that says that you are the problem rather than the the fossil fuel producers? being the problem which clearly they are
3: yeah i mean it's it's hard i do think the tide is changing in a lot of ways i mean the fact that antonio guerrero like literally said climate activists you know are depicted as dangerous radicals but the truly dangerous radicals are the countries that are increasing production of fossil fuels um i think it's really hard because you know this like you said this narrative has been pitched for so long but i think we need to understand that all these problems that we are facing you know the war in ukraine the cost of living crisis the climate crisis they all are rooted in our dependence in the government's addiction to fossil fuels and like you were saying all these prob like you know issues of social justice and inequality are so interlinked you know we cannot address the climate crisis without addressing those and if we finally make that connection then i think we can begin to tackle it but we just we have to challenge those lazy narratives that have been portrayed for so long and we just can't give up and we can't be intimidated because at this point if we know what we know And if we are able to act, then not doing anything, I feel, makes us complicit in this situation. And we can't afford that. We need to act. We need to act now. You know, we've been given two to three years, and like you said, this is the final section of the IPCC report that's being released. This is the last time we can really take action because they take years to produce by the time the next one comes out it will be too late we only have this window of opportunity to act and we have to give it our absolute best shot because literally everything good in this world everything we love is riding on it
0: Middle aged men in suits don't often get a good press, but look at what Mr. Guterres said today. We are on a fast track to climate disaster, major cities underwater, unprecedented heat waves, terrifying storms, widespread water shortages, the extinction of a million species of plants and animals. This is not fiction or exaggeration. It is what science tells us will result from our current energy policies. That's the United Nations top. Bloke and saying that it is the people who are creating the problem, the people who are producing fossil fuels, who are the truly dangerous radicals, not people like Claudia from Just Stop Oil. Just worth thinking about that for a moment. I said, you see the impact of climate change already on the global south. Just tell us what the situation is now and how it is likely to develop unless we tackle climate change.
1: So what we're seeing in terms of those of those climate impacts and look you don't need to be a climate scientist right we can switch on our television screens pretty much every single day now and see uh, those impacts occurring somewhere in the world right we've seen forest fires we've seen floods we've seen droughts we've seen climate famines uh, we've said, and, and the story of, of course, behind all of those is, is millions of lives being affected, lost, livelihoods destroyed, and for poorer countries and developing countries who are already beset with many of these other crises and inability to be able to deal with them. I mean, an example of this is is uh, some of you may remember in Mozambique, uh, one cyclone, an extreme cyclone, uh, affect. A, 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 destroyed about 90% of one of its major port cities. And it left a million people on the brink of starvation. Now, the reason there was a million people on the brink of starvation was because the government was simply unable and didn't have the resources to be able to deal with this crisis, largely because most of its economy is controlled by Western corporations, extractive industries, and it's playing huge amounts in unsustainable debt repayments. And it was forced to come to the City of London and beg for more debt-creating loans. Uh, when we saw last summer floods in Germany and floods in Uganda, in Germany, the German government allocated 30 billion euros to deal with the impact of that flood. Uh, In Uganda, there are no resources to be able to do that. So what we're seeing in terms of these extreme impacts is on literally every part and every part of the economy and every part of people's lives, we're seeing food impacts so, we're seeing as drought and as weather changes, we're seeing yields in food production in staples for declining, and that's already happening. We've seen, of course, how that for m- much of the world, which struggles to bet, you know, the mat- majority of the world isn't in a situation where it has the luxury or the ability to be able to weather m- many crises because it's already living a crisis. These just simply amplify all of those. So if you're already f- facing issues around food, it's pushing you into hunger. If you're f- facing issues in terms of insecurity in work, in your housing, all it's devastating those. And so, you know, whether it's, you know people being displaced from their homes in central america and forced to migrate and, and 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 look for safety whether it's farmers and peasants whether it's in kenya or in sri lanka or even whether it's workers you know in some of the in the, some of the poorest co- countries, they're all being impacted right and and of course the covid pandemic has as, 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 as literally you know I, I would say the pandemic it, for people who want to look at how the global community responds to a crisis, the pandemic has been basically the best example right It's a global issue it affects all of us it, it's impacting economies and it affects all of our everybody's health I mean, and, we, and, and of course as a pandemic it benefits us that we deal with this because all of us are vulnerable. Yet we saw rich countries compete with poor countries for life-saving PPE equipment we saw rich countries turn their back on poorer countries say sorry we're too busy we can't deal with and help you poor countries ended up having to uh, uh, beg for debt creating loans from the imf and now when we have a vaccine we refuse to allow the global south access to that vaccine and we say no we'll sell it to you that to some extent is exactly how the rich countries are dealing with the climate crisis. It's just—it's a—it's a simply, I, I, you know. I mean, people talk about colonialism as a as a as a historic fact, or the idea that we're willing to sacrifice people's lives in the pursuit of profit, as some sort of oh well, that must have been you know a hundred years ago or fifty. Well, no, actually, it's playing out on a day-to-day basis. And one of the reasons, for example, that the IPCC report was delayed was because there were huge fights going on, led by the United States, the UK, Germany, and other rich countries who wanted to say, look, any differential between developed and developing countries should go, i.e. equity should go. Even though we're rich countries, we're more responsible and we have the greatest wealth, what we want to just say is none of that matters. We have no responsibility. Everybody's exactly the same, that the poor and the rich are exactly the same. They want to take out even the mention of the paltry climate finance figure of 100 billion, which is a drop in the ocean. The UN estimates we'd need flows of between one and a half to two and a half trillion each and every year for the next 10 years, which sounds like a lot. But when we remember that the, the 2,800 billionaires that we have in the world, they amassed made 13 trillion just in last year alone. Additional profit. There is no lack of money. It's just some people are, of course, got the money, and the majority of people don't. So um, you know, those impacts are are are, are literally in every corner of the world uh, I'm originally from the India subcontinent uh, in my country of origin Pakistan we've had heat waves of over 50 degrees and this is a country where 4 out of 10 people face multiple dimensional poverty nobody's got a choice not to be out in the open working no air conditioning no fountains no days off and the government's response was to build was to start digging mass graves, because you know we'd had heat waves one year and massive floods the previous year. These extremes are devastating so many parts of the world. And uh, you know, and one 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 figure which completely always stands out to me in the story is Chennai, which is India's fifth biggest city, ran out of fresh water. I mean, literally ran out of fresh water. They had to. Tr- bring tra- uh, trailer, uh, tanks in of, of, of fresh water. And it's now predicted that something like 40% of the India subcontinent's population, we're talking over a billion and a half people, will be without access to fresh water within the coming decades. That's a huge impact on food production, huge impact on people's lives, and of course, huge displacement of people. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and uh, I will move on again to uh, Zach because I'm keen to get as many voices in as possible. I said, but it's it's fascinating talking to you and and listening to you. And I, I suppose I just think, and we found this with COVID, that people really are resistant to change, to change in the way they do things normally, unless they're absolutely forced to the trouble with climate change is that here in the uk by the time that climate change really starts to hit home it will be too late to start reversing it
1: so sorry were you asking me that question yeah was yeah
0: that- no i was just making that observation really that you know we really we really need to you know there's something uh, biblical about it isn't it was it you know it, was it who was it the one of the apostles having to see doubting thomas of course thomas the apostle you know would not believe that christ had died until he saw the until he saw the shroud you know there are many people who will not believe that climate change is real until they are forced to face its worst impacts on their lives directly so how do we get that sense of climate urgency instilled in people now if they don't feel it in their daily lives
1: well I, I actually i think people do feel it right we've looked at if we have had storm francis and 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 Eunice, we saw last year uh you know britain right one of the richest economies in the world our infrastructure overwhelmed tube stations flooded we 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 know this is happening we can see it all around us as well i mean what what i think is interesting at this moment is we've gone from a time when these people would deny climate change is real. Because now they all say, of course, we accept climate change. What they deny is the need to act. Right? it's like it's denialism about action not the no longer about the climate crisis and of course that happens at the top and it's fed through there's a reason why some of the most powerful media in this country are spinning out arguments that you know well it's all these green taxes that are responsible for your energy prices or actually that tackling climate change is too expensive we should put that on pause the reason we've got such a our energy system locked into the fossil fuel industry is because exactly because government refused to act when it knew it could decades ago even 10 years ago when it didn't allow onshore wind when it didn't allow warm home policy when it didn't invest in the retrofitting it has all of the evidence in front of it so the idea that these governments don't know or our government doesn't know they do know but what they're calculating is still a balance sheet which says our economy and our vested interests, that's much more important than people's lives. And as long as we do that, and as long as they're in power to be able to influence our our political decision makers so they're not acting in our interests we're never going to see that change so I absolutely agree with with Claudia you know that when we look at any social transformation that's ever happened in human history it's happened because ordinary people demanded it and forced governments to act and that's what's needed now in terms of this crisis
0: Well, you certainly won't find that corporate voice expressed anywhere on the Byline Times, and if you want to support our work then, and get a fantastic monthly newspaper into the bargain, do think about subscribing to the Byline Times, because that subscription, or even better still, a membership to the Byline Times, not only gets you a brilliant monthly newspaper, you're also helping to support Byline Radio, where you may be listening to this broadcast live, or the Byline Times podcast, where you may be listening to this on catch-up. You get details on how to subscribe will take out a membership at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. We'll hear more from uh, Asad, uh, Asad as we go, but let's uh, bring Zach into the conversation. Hello, Zach. Welcome to Byline Radio. Hi, yeah.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me, Adrian.
0: Yeah, a first-timer, I think. Zach, welcome along.
4: Yeah, um, thank you. Um, I just wanted to sort of pick up on a question you sort of brought, uh, brought into the topic a second ago about how about the urgency of this all. And, um, you know, I think it's quite an interesting topic, to be honest, there's so much to it. Um, Yesterday I was on top of one of the oil tankers in the Just Stop Oil protests. Uh, I was arrested for that um, and I got out last night. So yeah, it's quite an urgent situation for me and for lots of people, uh, including Claudia, who obviously, when we talk about things that are happening in the global south at the moment and what's gonna happen in the future if we don't get our act together now, it's it's very harrowing stuff. And I think when it comes to the urgency, especially like you said, of those people in suits, getting them to realize what a situation we're in, it does take quite drastic action. And, you know, yesterday I had police officers asking me why we couldn't do, do it, uh, do it in other ways, why we couldn't go down the usual routes. And um, it's quite an interesting question. Like I said, a second ago, and I, I said to them, you know, do you really think people would be getting arrested here? Do you think people would be putting their bodies on the line if they didn't think it was this urgent? And I think that's really what the world leaders need to think about here is the urgency that we need to be seeing. Um, Obviously, I don't think Boris Johnson has that sense of urgency. Uh, His words are all there. His words are fairly good. I mean, some of the things he said at COP26 were absolutely bang on the money, especially when it came to him describing the effects of climate change that we'll see if we don't act, but his actions say otherwise. Um, there was something in the press a few weeks back uh, about him trying to, obviously in the midst of party gate, of him trying to appease right-wing voters by quote-unquote scrapping lefty policies like uh, climate change policies to, you know, lessen climate change. And I don't think our leaders have that sense of urgency and uh, it's, it's quite... Um, setting for a lot of people obviously uh like myself who were out on the road yesterday getting arrested um i'm a young person i'm under the age of 18 uh i was arrested yesterday i didn't want to be getting arrested but i think we've got to a point in time now where like claudia said we've been going with petitions we've been going with lobbying we've been going for all these things for 30 years now and what have we seen temperature increase is the only thing we've seen so far it's It's a really bad position that we're in, and, yeah, I completely echo Claudia's words when it comes to, you know, I think this is the only option we're left with at the moment.
0: Are you able to tell us what you did from a legal point of view, or does that risk jeopardising any action that the police might take against you, Zach?
4: No, absolutely. Um, So, yeah, yesterday I climbed an oil tanker. Uh, The official term is tanker surfing, Um, and we were on top of this oil tanker for quite a few hours before we decided to attach ourselves to the tanker and we were then removed by the police so, and then obviously arrested and where was that uh this was in Essex i don't know the precise location near uh, near but...
0: Thuric, i think was the uh, the site near near Essex yeah and obviously you risk then as a young person getting a criminal record which could have long-term consequences for you. I don't know whether you've thought about those consequences,
4: but does that trouble you at all? No, well, uh, like you say, um, I fully accept the consequences of my actions. um, And I think going back to that sense of urgency, I wouldn't be doing this if there was no need for urgency here. But uh, it's like I said to those same police officers on the ground, you know, we have, we don't we, we don't have really any, any other choice, especially when the only things our government listen to is when their pockets are hit. You know, it's, we've been thinking, or lots of us have been talking over the past few days about how much money we think might have been lost as a result of these acts of resistance. Um, and you know, we're seeing petrol stations being closed, even the police were saying in the station that they're struggling to fuel their vans because of the uh, blockades that have been put in place. So. You know, it's it's a really unfortunate place that we're in here where we have to put our bodies online, where we have to get arrested in order for the government to listen. We wish it wasn't that way, but unfortunately it is.
0: Yeah, uh, and in the UK, I mean, we have, uh, uh, as a journalist, as a broadcaster, the dumbass way that we... Portray these disputes or portray these protests, I've got to say, that really does my head in. I know that one of your colleagues was chatting to Julia Hartley Brewer on Talk Radio, and they're happily sending out a tweet with one of these supposedly smart one liners from her, in which she asks your colleague Zansi, What's the alternative to gas or oil? Do you want us to sit in the dark and cold? And I'm thinking, who is Who thinks that's funny? Who thinks that's relevant to the crisis that we're facing? Because I'm imagining, Zach, and you can tell me that I'm wrong, that if our government and governments in the West in general had a thoroughgoing and determined programme to try and green our energy, you wouldn't be sitting on top of a tanker in Thurrock. You'd be saying, good on you or you might in the way of young people be finding something else to protest about but it wouldn't be that you know you're not doing it for fun or because you want to sit in a dark cave that's not what this is about that's just such a a dumb and reductive way to treat these serious concerns and yet that is the
4: reflex way of so much of the british media yeah, no, I completely agree. I think the way that lots of the right-wing media, especially, have handled this. Um, but I can sort of understand why. I've said this quite a lot lately, that obviously people like Julia Hartley Brewer are probably very decent people outside of their work. Um, I can see them you know, having good chats with them. But I think, obviously, because they are tied to money, they are being paid to express these views. You know, It's usually not just climate change they deny, but things like COVID-19 as well. They're paid to have these very controversial opinions. And I'd be surprised if a lot of them actually stuck to them outside of their work. Um, and yeah, it's, it's quite shocking how the media have sort of spun this. But um, no, I agree with your later point about how if there was the government doing doing things, then we wouldn't be out there on the oil tankers. I mean, we saw the response to COVID-19 was uh, absolutely rapid. The amount of money that was put into that. Um, if we look at things for a bigger picture, then the climate crisis is a far, far larger problem than um, COVID-19 in terms of its long-term effects. Obviously both of those things are horrific, but when we look at COVID versus the the whole of the human race going extinct, then I think we can sort of distinguish which one is worse. And I think if the government did put in the amount of resources that they put into tackling COVID, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't see as much action being taken from people like myself because the government would be getting on. They would be, they would They'd be getting on and they'd be trying to do their best but at the moment we're, we're seeing the opposite to that we're seeing boris johnson saying we're going to go with more north sea oil and gas we're saying that the, we're seeing the chancellor saying that north sea oil and gas is beneficial for the economy and jobs when we have a chancellor who is putting economic growth before us as humans then i think we know something is wrong and that's i think that's where the line has been drawn here and that's why people like myself have you know clambered onto oil tankers yeah
0: What moved you to start getting involved, Zach? What was the fear that you felt that persuaded you you needed to take action?
4: Yeah, um, well, it's quite an interesting question. Um, I obviously, I started, I think like a lot of people, I I started uh, eating only a vegan diet, um, obviously for lots of reasons, uh, personal health and um, animal rights and things like the environment. But I think it's just something at the back of our minds, to be honest. Um, and obviously we we saw campaigns like uh, the Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain. And it sort of uh, intrigued me in a way as why people putting their bodies on the line for this. Um, it seems quite drastic that people are willing to be sent to prison for this. And obviously we have things like the IPCC reports and the Chatham House Risk Assessments and all of these world leading scientists coming out saying, you know, we need drastic action now. And Obviously that's not a minority held view. And so I was like, you know, this is a fairly serious very serious thing we're, we're seeing here. And, you know, I looked into this campaign, it's Just Stop Oil campaign, and it just seemed like a good thing to sign up for. You know, it's, it's not that anyone wants to break law. It's not that anyone wants to get arrested. It's that people want to do the right thing. And obviously it might not do anything, but personally I'd rather to say, you know, to put it this way, I'd rather go down trying than doing nothing at all. Great words, Zach. Uh, stay there if you will. Happily,
0: uh, chat with you more a little bit later on. Mordecai has joined us from Washington DC. I got it right this time. Mordecai, welcome along. You're right.
2: Yes, yes, you did get it right. How are you doing, Adrian?
0: <laughs> yeah, good. Nice to speak to you, Mordecai. Go on. What's your <laughs> observation? on Yes. This?
2: Um, I'm great uh, grateful that you brought on Assad. Did I pronounce that name correctly, Assad?
0: Well, you pronounce it the same as me. So we'll take it. Okay. Uh, no, let's ask uh, Assad. Assad, Assad did, did we pronounce it
2: correctly? It's Assad, but okay. it's fine. Let's go. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Um, I think you bring a a great point, and you've really outlined um, great points, and you've outlined uh, the issues at hand, and I'm also grateful you um but that Zach and Claudia have taken the steps that they have because um, action is what is needed now um, trying to figure out if there is uh, climate change is not something that is uh, needed because we have the science and nobody uh, can disagree with it, even if they would want to. I think that as Claudia and Zach, they're taking action, personal action, It comes down, though, to to government policy, uh, which can many times be influenced by lobbyists. But government policy is what's going to drive um, actual large scale action, um, both by the government and by companies which are beholden to rules that the government uh, lays out Um, and as much as was said at COP26 and as much as um, my President Joe Biden and uh, Prime Minister Johnson and as other people have said, um, actually following through and following through promptly, you know, like they said, uh, as people have said, we don't have 10, 15, 20 years to, you know, take steps and actually get to a point that where where things are are working we don't have that time um having these conferences is wonderful where they can talk they can say oh we're going to do this we're going to aim for that target it has to you know Congress has to go and and enact the laws and then give the power and the money to the EPA uh, Environmental Protection Agency here and other uh, agencies in the same um, type of uh, action and places, uh, agencies that are in other countries. Again, it comes down to policy. Uh, The science is there. I work at NOAA. And I see the science every day. I collect the science. It's just, it's just who's going to do something about it? And I'm the not willing. to- authority.
0: what what is NOAA for people? Here?
2: NOAA is National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We collect all the all sorts of climate data, uh, whether it's in the air, whether it's in the ocean, um, uh, reefs, uh, fisheries. Uh, you you name it. If it is related to how our Earth um, functions and survives, uh, NOAA uh, is the premier uh, I guess the premier agency in the U.S. and collects the data and disseminates it from agencies around the world um,
0: an, an appropriate name and it may not be accidental but sadly there's no arc is there to to rescue <laughs> us from this uh, i just wonder though uh, mordecai you know you, you're acknowledging the scale of this problem the scale of this crisis there you are in the united states which is the top oil producing country in the world and of course there are these lobbyists and there are these big corporate interests at play that will mitigate any political action that Joe Biden, or whoever is in the White House, might seek to take. But another limiter, if you like, is the fact that there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who work in these industries, whose livelihoods would be immediately threatened if the United States were to dramatically scale back oil production. How do you persuade people that it is in their best interest if, in the short term, anyway, they fear they will lose their job and their livelihood.
2: Uh, I think that the word that you used, short term, is going to is what is what hurts because when people say um, when people hear, oh, for one year we're going to be cutting things back and you're going to be struggling, um, they don't want to they don't want to make changes. Um, If a long-term plan, and when I say long-term, I'm talking, you know, three, four, five years. If a long-term plan is outlined to people who are in these industries, you know, the oil, the gas, um, other fossil fuel uh, industries, if a long-term plan is outlined, and people are guaranteed that their jobs will be migrated from what they are doing now to a more, um, uh, we'll, we'll say, uh, positive energy. Uh, positive energy. Uh, I don't know what do you want. What do you want to call it? But to good, good forms of collecting energy from our Earth and using it. If there's that guarantee, and gosh, that's a hard thing to do because you have Congress, you know, turns over every two years. A president turns over every four years if people are guaranteed they know I have going to have a job for these five years and then going forward, I think that they will hop on board, but that's, that just doesn't, that doesn't exist here in the government. Once you've been after you've passed your probation period. So then you have quote tenure, um, to be a federal employee, but that's just for the government, other companies, like the um those uh oil companies and uh you know those who are polluting they can't they're not going to provide that guarantee to employees they don't know how much money they're going to be making um if they change the way they do business or if they move to a different industry wind uh solar uh water i think that that people providing an outline to people that we're going to take care of you. And I know it might hurt in the short term, but we're going to take care of you and you will keep your jobs. That would, gosh, that would be huge. But that's, that's that doesn't fall under policy and people have to just have a tremendous amount of trust that companies are looking out for the world, the health of the world, and they're also looking out for the health of the people who live in the world and understand. Yeah, earth.
0: well, that's a big sell. Let me bring in Asad for a, a final thought on that. And Asad, that is really, you know, uh, we may well be nodding in agreement at what Mordecai says, but the idea that we could have that mass migration of jobs, even if we think we need it, is going to be a, a big, hard sell, isn't it?
1: well it doesn't need to be a big hard sell right i mean i think the reality is, of course for me- for many people particularly in in even in industries like the fossil fuel industry you know people look and, and have seen let's say in the uk for example saw what happened you know with the coal mines right massive deindustrialization people thrown onto the scrappy communities devastated you can't have a just transition you can involve workers in the fossil fuel industry in fact there's an amazing work going on in scotland at this moment with oil workers right where oil workers themselves are saying we want to transition the same in Colombia, where fossil where oil workers in the oil industry in Colombia are saying we want to transition in south africa this story is the same all over the world workers recognize that this crisis is also a crisis that affects them and their community. So they don't put jobs versus climate. What you can do is say, what kind of good jobs can we secure? If you just simply say to people, this industry is over, of course people are worried because they know that the consequences are devastating, right? People are just left into poverty and inequality. But if the government was saying, we are going to create government backed jobs, good jobs, union jobs with work, good pay, so you're not going to be in insecure work, and the, all your skills are the same skills that we need for massive redeployment of renewable energy, for the technologies that we need, people will gladly move. It's, it's, it's because we've created a, a system of, of, of employment, which is basically a race to the bottom of low wages, that people who are in semi-secure work, and good wages, like in the fossil fuel industry. Look at the rest of the economy and say, I'm protecting what I've got, not what, and I don't want to end up working two jobs a a, a week and be stuck in zero-hour contracts or with low pay. That, so that is about fixing our economy and the kind of jobs that are that are on offer, and that can be done. There's a massive demand from workers, and in fact, if you look at the trade unions, they're leading this call saying we want to just transition. We want we want to be able to protect jobs and create new jobs, but, but there has to be a guarantee from the government that, that it will do that. And that, again, requires government intervention and government regulation. And when we have our governments who are unwilling to intervene in the economy because they're wedded to you know, the broken ideology of neoliberalism that, you know, the market will find the solution and we can't intervene in, 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 to limit the power of our corporations. And of course people, you know, but they, they're they not, you know, they, if the environmentalists simply say get out and fossil fuels without also saying, you know, what jobs we're going to create how and stand alongside workers, then, you know, I'm, I don't know if you remember the gilets jaunes, the yellow vests, right? They uh, When they protested in France, yeah. they had a banner at their first protest, and it said, uh, the elites worry about the end of the world. We ordinary people, we worry about the end of the month. And our answer has got to be, we worry about the end of the world, and we worry about the end of the month. So the key... Mm-hmm takeaway for the climate movement has got to be unless you are also making demands like good jobs living wages social protection public services people aren't going to believe that you're serious about social and economic justice and we have to prove that if the climate movement has to prove that and it began to do that in glasgow when climate activists stood side by side with trade unions and workers in struggle and i actually began to in very practical terms workers started saying Actually, these people are on our side as well. It's not an oppositional fight. We both can benefit jobs, good jobs, and tackling the climate crisis. Look, I just want to end by saying one thing. There is a message of incredible hope, right? Because the IPCC report also says it's the solutions to tackling the climate crisis are cheaper and more available than at any time. And half of all the potential comes with no or low costs or even saves us money. So even from a cost perspective, we know that acting on climate change can make huge savings and actually be hugely beneficial and it sets out all the things that we need to do and it is a transforming of our housing and our transport Mm -hmm. systems our energy systems our food systems but all of them can transformations that are actually going to be positive for people and that's the story we've got to tell people that this change can be positive if we keep it in the hands of governments and corporations it's going to be devastating we
0: appreciate your time thank you Uh,
2: i just want to put in one thing asad you said it so um eloquently and one of the key things is skills people who are working in the fossil fuel industry their skills trans can be transferred over to um whatever other energy uh production that we want to make and uh people have to understand that uh, they, they're not they're not beholden to what they are doing right now on an oil rig or um, an assembly line they can move to someplace else and they're just as smart and just as capable can
3: i say go on claudia yeah i was gonna
0: hoping to end with you anyway Claudia. <laughs> so, go on good really? intervention go on
3: Thank you. Um, I just wanted to touch on something Mordecai said earlier, which was this idea of like, you know, Stack and I taking individual change and while I, and, and sort of that need to go further. And while obviously individual change is, you know, important and i think we absolutely need to welcome it campaigns like just stop oil you know they are about this system change that we need you know you talked about mordecai the need for policy change and absolutely we need that policy change but again governments have demonstrated they are not capable of taking those necessary steps they're not capable of prioritizing people it's always profit and so we need to make that we need to apply that pressure. We need to be the ones that help shape that policy. And as part of that, again, it absolutely has to be a just transition. It has to be, it has to take these people on board, the people who are currently working for these industries. They cannot be left behind. And the reality is that the longer we leave it, the harder and harder that it's going to be. And the more and the more people that get hurt. So we need to act. We need to act act urgently, both in terms of the climate crisis and in terms of taking care of one another. And you asked the question also, M- Mordecai, of who is going to do this? Who's going to do something about it? And it has to be us. We have to come together. We have to demand better. We have to take action. We don't want the same thing but green. We don't want a system that is equally as exploitative, but just green. We want to create a better world that takes care of people. And again, we have this tiny, tiny window of opportunity. So who's going to do something about it? And well, I hope it's all of us. So again, please, if you see the urgency, if you want a better world, if you care about your children, if you care about the people in the Global South who are currently facing the worst effects of the climate crisis then please step up and do something about it we have this tiny window of opportunity let's come together let's take action and let's demand that the government stop supporting the fossil fuel industry so that we can all have a better future
0: claudia thank you so much and what a passionate and eloquent way to end this broadcast really appreciate your time this evening claudia from just stop oil likewise your colleague zach likewise Mordecai and Assad Raymond as well from War on Want and thank you to everybody who's listened whether you're listening live on Byline Radio or on catch up via the Byline Times podcast. I like to think that on these conversations we have the room to explore issues in real depth and to hear people speaking without rushing off to the news or being interrupted by a sports result. Not that I've got anything against sport. I love it but you know what I mean and Please spread the word about these broadcasts. I'm immensely proud of what we do on Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast. And I hope that you can encourage more people to listen, because I think this is a wonderful place in which to air these issues, to discuss them and to hear people with real passion and real knowledge. No confected arguments, we believe, in conversation, not confrontation and i think we've had some amazing broadcasting tonight thank you to everybody who's taken part if you do want to support the byline times and what we do then please take out a subscription to the byline times newspaper more details at bylinetimes.com we'll be back again very soon stay tuned to at byline radio on twitter to find out about our live spaces or subscribe free to our podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode and thanks to harvey white he does so much good work as well helping me bring these things to air thank you everyone you'll see you all again very soon take care now cheers